we will continue with a panel that exactly will take forward the discussion that started in the, in the first panel in a, in a way that we invited four artists to uh, discuss their practice in the, through the premise of the diasporic traje trajectory uh, and how they situate themselves within that discussion about African diaspora and African-American and the status of Africa in the term African-American in the context of the US, of course, but also globally and in the context of Africa itself. Um, I'm very happy to, uh, to introduce uh, two of, I think I have a few, I mean, I have a few favorite artists worldwide, but uh, uh, these two here are part of those. And uh, I'm very happy that uh, they accepted the invitation, they take the time in their busy agenda to be here, to share with us their experience, to share with us their thoughts and their practice. Uh, Hank Willis Thomas is a photo conceptual artist working primarily with themes related to identity, history and popular culture. He has exhibited throughout the US and abroad and in numerous public collections, and is in numerous public collections, including the Museum of Modern Art New York, the Brooklyn Museum, and the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. His collaborative projects have been featured in the Sundance Film Festival and installed permanently at the Oakland International Airport the Birmingham Shuttleworths International Airport, the Oakland Museum of California, and the University of California, San Francisco. He is a recipient of the New Media Grant from Tribeca Film Institute, a New Media uh, Infinity Award from the International Center of Photography for his transmedia project, Question Bridge, Black Males. He was recently appointed to the Public Design Commission for the City of New York. Please welcome Hank. <laughs> Hank will have a conversation with fellow colleague and artist Lyle Ashton Harris, which I think doesn't need an introduction in New York, but I'll do it still because we have a lot of people here who may not be familiar with his work. For more than two decades now, Lyle Ashton Harris has cultivated a diverse artistic practice ranging from photographic media, collage, installation, and performance. His work explores intersections between the personal and the political examining the impact of ethnicity, gender, and desire on the contemporary social and cultural dynamic. His work has been exhibited internationally, including at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Salomon R. Guggenheim Museum, and the 52nd Venice Biennial. In 2014, Harris joined the Board of Trustees of the American Academy in Rome and was named the 10th the 10th recipient of the David, David C. Driscoll Prize by the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. 
Georgia. He currently lives and works in New York City and is an associate professor at NYU in New York and uh, Ghana. We invited, uh, I, I mean, we invited these artists also because they have developed a very sound and serious practice working in Africa for Lyle in Ghana and for Hank a lot in South Africa. And uh, the discussion will be moderated by Adrian Edwards, who already has shown us her brightness in the previous uh, panel. Adrian is a curator, scholar, and writer with a focus on artists of African diaspora and the global south. She is curator at Performer and a PhD candidate in performance studies at uh, New York University, where she is a Corrigian doctoral fellow. Edwards' research interpolates visual and time-based art, experimental dance, critical race theory, feminist theory, and post-structuralist philosophy. She has organized performance projects with numerous artists, including Rashid Johnson, Dave McKenzie, and Sengan Ngudi, among others. Edwards is... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Adrian is a contributor to many exhibition catalogs and art publications, as well as performance reviews, editor for the Journal of Feminist Theory, Women and Performance. She is also currently organizing an exhibition and publication, Blackness in Abstraction, for Pace Gallery for summer 2016. Thank you very much. Welcome, Adrian. <laughs> What will the structure for uh, the next hour and 15 minutes will be uh, a presentation by each of the artists who will talk a bit about their work. We'll start with Hank, and then we'll all three come together and have a conversation about the themes that Koyo has already outlined for us. Okay, thank you. I'll use this mic. Or this working too? The couch is a little low, so I... Um wanted to sit up. So it's really, really great to be here, uh, particularly because I had the pleasure of going to 154 in London and witnessed some of the, the lectures and talks there. And it was so exciting. And so thank you so much, Koyo, for uh, working with so many other great people to bring it here. And Pioneer Works being such a, a great incubator and kind of relief from uh, some of the the density over there, this place to think and to be and to talk. And um, I see friends coming in late, Toyin. Um, and uh, I guess I, I wanted to, I, right, listening to the previous conversation, uh, there were certain things that jumped out at me that it caused me at the last minute to change what I was going to talk about a little bit. Um, but, and where would I point to, but I, I still will try to keep on track. Um, but there's, I did a show in South Africa in 2010, I believe, and it was called All Things Being Equal. And some of the things that I was trying to deal with at that time were um, the ways in which equality um, is used as a political term, but it's also so elusive, you know, that uh, equal in what ways and how, um, and how whenever we appear to reach a level of equality that becomes a new disparity. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but then I realized I'd done a project uh, with the help of Jamil Kosako um, 
through um, uh, the New York Live Arts, Bill T. Jones, uh, in a collaboration with Lawrence Weschler. Um, and it was for their last year's James Baldwin Festival. James Baldwin has basically said everything I would ever want to say, just better, and a long time ago. Um, so I wanted to show you guys an excerpt from, um, from the, 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 the five-channel video installation that we showed there. Can, do these lights go down at all? Uh, it's only... It's, Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Ella. That's good. It seems to me that the artist struggle for his integrity must be considered as a metaphor for the struggle which is universal and daily of all human beings on the face of this terrifying globe to get to become human beings. What we might get at this evening if we are lucky, if the mic doesn't fail, my voice holds out, if you ask me questions, is what the importance of this effort is. Now, when you were starting out as a writer, you were a black, impoverished, homosexual. You must have said to yourself, gee, how disadvantaged can I get? Oh, no, I thought I hit the jackpot. Oh, great. <laughs> it was so outrageous, you could not go any further, you know. It had to be, so you had to find a way to use it. James Baldwin, who are you? First of all, I'm speaking as an American citizen. I'm speaking as, also as the grandson of a slave. My mother was born in Maryland, my father was born in New Orleans, I was born in New York. Someone who represents a very complex country which insists on being simple-minded. If I were original, originally from Dakar or from uh, wherever I was in Africa, I couldn't find out where it was because my entry into America is a bill of sale. And that stops, you know, that stops you from going any further. At some point in, in, the, in our history, I became... Nobody knows my name. Baldwin's nigger. James Baldwin, who are you? Don't you care not to find out? When it rains for days in the skies turn dark as night. There are days, this is one of them, when you wonder. When it rains five days in the skies turn dark as night. What your role is in this country and what your future is in it. A boy last week, he said, I got no country, I got no flag. Now he's only 16 years old. And I couldn't say you do. We don't even have a country. I know that. Do we have a country? He said, you know, it's your country, which is not your country. What flag going a black man flag? You have no flag, brother. Speaking now as though I were your educator, as though I were your teacher, I would beg you, to ask me why, for example, your history books are the way they are. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. 
I'm compelled to doubt my history, to examine it. I'm compelled to try to create it. I'm trying to excavate my history from all the rubble that has buried it for so many hundreds of years. And that means I have to question everything. So that's just... The aims of a society... That's just an excerpt from this project. It's called, A Person is More Important Than Anything Else, which is a quote from James Baldwin. And I think um, so many things that just you see in that three-minute excerpt of a 30-minute piece really sum up a lot of the things that my work is about and a lot of the challenges that I'm trying to, that I struggle with and that I try to combat. Um, and it starts actually in, in, in the womb of my mother. Um, and so I am not my own artist. I am an artist as part of a legacy. Um, and I think most of my work is just like a, a remix of my mom's work in any variety of ways. Um, and so her name is Deborah Willis. She is an artist, an art historian, and she's a person. And she came across this um, this obstacle when she was a child of contending with images of African Americans that didn't really represent um, the people that she saw and she knew. And um, she came across this book, which is called uh, The Sweet Fly Paper of Life by uh, Langston Hughes and Roy de Carava. And it was a one of the very first times that she saw images of African Americans and language of African Ameri uh, written about African Americans in a way that she could relate to, that actually made them appear to be human beings. And that led her on a lifelong journey um, to um, think about photography as a way to um, tell new stories and to reframe our notions. And so this is a, actually a research paper she wrote as a college student about um, she says, I found no standard, no standard art history that refers to any Afro-American artist. References have led me to more references. She's doing an independent research project on the black contribution to photography from 1840 to 1940. And that became her first book 13 years later. And thinking about what it means to be for black photographers in 1840, so 25 years before the end of emancipation, at the kind of edge the cutting edge of science, of creativity. Uh, you had to know so much about physics, chemistry. You had to have means. You had to have an education. Um, you had to have knowledge. You had to have desire and dreams. And what is, it, how does it reframe our notion of at least the black American experience, but really the American experience to think that there were black photographers making images that long, but they also did it with values that were very different than what mainstream society um, was Creating. And so that led to another book, Black Photographers, 1840, 1988. I was supposed to flash through these all real fast. You can just flip through these all fast. And then she had made some more books, and some more books, and 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 more, and more, and more, and more, and more, and more. And each of them was just another chance to kind of chip away at the many, many misleading images uh, that became dominant about African Americans. And one of the artists that she uh, introduced to me through that work was Lyle Ashton Harris uh, and his brother Thomas Allen Harris. And um, as a young teenager, to be able to see um, people reframing masculinity, reframing, reframing family, reframing beauty and blackness um, ha was it, it was a call to action. And so as I became a photographer and started to take pictures myself, I was always thinking about frames within frames and who I would focus on 
and also think about how um, other people might focus on. See, Chris is mad late. You missed the good part. Um, but really, so as, as a person who's constantly thinking about frames, I started to do that in my own work as I graduated. This is from college. And if, if I'm taking too long, it's because the click is not working. Um, but my work is really, I, I wound up um, really realizing, as much as I tried to be my own person, that I really was following in her footsteps. And so we did a collaboration in a show called Progeny called Sometimes I See Myself in You. And it's uh, partially because I uh, used to go places and be Deb's son, and now she goes places like last night, and she's Hank's mom. Um, and so we have this, her and my father, but we have this really amazing symmetry and, 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 and I feel like it's beautiful and inspiring, but also keeps me in line um, because I realize why I'm doing it and I'm really picking up where someone else left off. But also, so, I, so with the work, I'm frequently looking at notions of blackness, notions of Africa in popular culture. I don't know, should I go back there? My rhythm's thrown off. Um, what should I do? Can I go back there? There's no microphone back there, huh? Okay, I'll just do this. But act, everyone else pretend you didn't see it. Um, but thinking about um, of how the, how Africa is portrayed in 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 21st century in a variety of ways, and thinking about um, where th these images come from, I go to uh, images like this. And how many people know who this is? Okay, who's Bert Williams? One of the most famous people in the world, and none of us know who he is based off of looking at this image. Two people. But this is the image that we were celebrating, him, or society still celebrated him as, as, a, as a, a, a person of the black diaspora, thinking about the performance of blackness and ways in which uh, certain ones are, 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 are supported and, and moneyed to, to a degree, and how other ones are, are ignored, and the way that he performed blackness offstage in contrast to the way he do, did it um, on stage, I, I start to think about how um, we, there's these structures that are formed about who belongs where and what, and um, how things change, and how there's these flippings of the script of like when the great white hope came at the same time that the great black hope came, no one noticed um, that at least there was a new way in which the, the black body could be rethought of. Um, and thinking about how black bodies could be rethought of in different ways, I started thinking about in my own work, logos as hieroglyphs and logos that represent uh, archetypical black bodies or heroic black bodies, how they might have been treated at a different period of time. And, when, and with the work, I always am thinking about how um, blackness is, is a commodity. It, it cre was created as a commodity and thinking about how um, slaves were branded as a sign of ownership and now we live in age of branded consciousness and thinking about how I could use the language of advertising to talk about things that advertising couldn't responsibly talk about and um, thinking about um, contentions of, of, of the moment and I, some uh, great collectors from, from all over the world, Bob and Renee Drake have, have this work um, and thinking about um, the, the black bodies on the field working for free today in the United States um, in college sports, in multi-billion dollar industry, and how their ancestors not too long ago did the same thing. And there was, uh, it's this history repeating itself, but also looking at this work that's in the collection of Jesse uh, Williams and Aaron Drake Lee Williams, who are also here. Um, 
I, I'm so happy that I can make work that speaks to very difficult issues and find collectors that are willing to like put it up in their house and deal with it, because sometimes I don't know if I could do it. Um, thinking about the, the, the door no return, um, um, which is in, 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 in Dakar, uh, and thinking about that connection as, as a channel to uh, the next place, Africa, America, this place that I come from, uh, this place that is in, implicitly hy uh, a hybrid place, and thinking about other artists like uh, Sanford Biggers, who this is a collaboration with, who is constantly looking at the hybridity that's within himself, uh, doing work where it's like blurry on the front and clear from the side, and thinking about um, how I can use motion and having to move around to see how different um, perspectives affect what we see, thinking politically um, about historical images and how I can remix them. I like to read the last line as a poem. Um, I'm a man, uh, because this, the phrase I grew up with wasn't I am a man, it was I am the man, um, which went from this collective statement during segregation to the selfish statement during segregation. So it says, uh, I'm the man, uh, who's the man, you the man, what a man, I'm man, I'm human, I'm many, I am, am I, I am, I am, I am a man. And so thinking about um, maybe the greatest gift that I could ever have been given was my consciousness, and that's all that we really have at the end of the day. And that's the thing that I should be using to validate myself and making my work around. But thinking about the power of someone saying I am, um, the political uh, nature of, of just calling uh, your own value, um, I thought about how I could use the kitsch of political pins to talk about things uh, that are astounding. Who, this person says I am the greatest. And um, who's the greatest? What? Who's the greatest? Why are y'all so shy? <laughs> if he was here, he said who's the greatest. <laughs> but the fact that someone born in a segregated uh, South with very little means could define themselves as the greatest, not the greatest of all time, not the greatest boxer, but just the greatest of all time, was this absurd concept, but that speaks to the power of, and he proved it. Even as we watched him degrade physically, um, he can still be, he still is undeniably the greatest. And thinking about how I could use sports as, these, so I made these huge political pins, uh, and thinking about how I could use, we can use sports as a metaphor for uh, the triumph of the human spirit and politics as well, and protests, I started using political pins as, in, in this way, and thinking about the, the, the gestures towards um, escape to new opportunity, thinking about how college sports can also be seen as a metaphor for so many people to move and to migrate. So images like this, go back one, um, of the generation that made the, the migration from the south to the north in the 1914s, the connection to their migration and the messages that were embedded in quilts um, on the Underground Railroad. Uh, this is a pattern called flying geese where it's, these, it's about following the geese north, and that's what these people did. And thinking about how I, how I could use new frames and multi-directional frames, um, or three-sided frames, et cetera, to, to talk about new things is what I'm constantly thinking about, how framing and context changing everything, the power of the potency of the, 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 the fist, and, and as, as feeble as it is in, in, in contrast to the gun, but intellectually, uh, I think about how I can do that in a variety of ways with, with, with different work and, and putting ourselves in work with mirrors um, in the context of political events, especially today, where we see <laughs> this history repeating itself. Public enemy number one. Um, how do we um, 
deal with that, I, I really wanted to bring these historical moments to have a, and photographs that I had a two-dimensional relationship to into the third dimension. So I make, uh, in South Africa, these images, uh, I use images from South Africa to talk about protest um, and, and, and viewers having to deal with them and to walk around and to go into the moment and have a real phenomenological relationship to this moment where people are protesting, having to have passbooks. And what, is it, what does it mean when you see these uh, disembodied arms that become almost universal in their relationships? But also thinking about um, how I could make, take an image and reframe it and says a new thing as I titled it, Raise Up. And events of last year gave this work a totally different meaning. Um, so I'm constantly doing, finding new ways to talk about the same thing and thinking about um, how the struggles um, here of, uh, of the mid 20th century could be re reinterpreted in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a bronze sculpture. And the bronze sculpture says something different because of, of, of the new context when it's disembodied. We think about the children in, in refugee camps all over the world, um, thinking about what happens when we look at Germany through the end lens of blackness and, and more and more ways of, of, of rethinking and recropping, um, but also thinking about liberty. This picture could have been taken right here, actually. Um, and, and how sports is that metaphor often for so many people to, um, say, to reach for new heights, say new things, and to consider uh, what's most important, which is hope, which I love to, to, to point out that it was, for a brief moment, one of the most profound statements appropriated by a person of African descent. Thank you. Well, that was, thank you, that was amazing, Hank. How does this, how does this work now? Um, can I control this or? Okay, great. Um, hi, it's, it's great to be here. Um, first, I would like to thank um, Koyo. This is um, it's wonderful to meet you, and it's really inspiring. It's my first time actually being here, and um, yeah, it was. I needed to say that I, I'm sort of off the grid, and I agreed to do this because of you. And but coming here and taking this experience, hearing a previous panel, parts of that, and hearing Hank, I'm really inspired. Um, there's something in the energy here that reminds me and longs for my time in Ghana, where I was living for seven years. That, as Hank was saying, is away from all the hustle and bustle. I mean, it has its own hustle and bustle, but there's something here that feels um, genuine, real, and authentic. So I just want to just start by saying that. So thank you, and that's to the audience as well. Um, so. I'd just like to just um, share a few observations and personal reflections informing my, my recent work and also to speak a little bit about my time in Ghana and the works that came out of that particular period. I'm gonna time myself. Um, but I thought I would start with, um, start with some early work of mine. As you know, prior to traveling to Ghana, much of my work um, since the early 90s has consisted of portraiture. Um, myself and others, and um, this is sort of emblematic of the work I was doing. Um, this was a commission for the New York Times. There were five of us, um, Chuck Close, Marilyn Martyr, Nan Golden, who were, com were commissioned to do self-portraits in anticipation of the 2000 election year. And um, 
it was, I mean, getting with some of the stuff that Hank was talking about, the power of the image, because I remember when I um, was commissioned this portrait that the editor of the New York Times, um, the photo editor, had to bring down the main editor because they were, they were questioning whether or not they could actually have this representation within the context of a magazine. So I early on understood the power of, let's say, image to somehow to counter, if you will, sort of neg negative representations. And this image was very much inspired by... Um, the um, several things. It's by the Louima, um, Abner Louima, in police brutality when he was uh, sodomized by the police. But also at the time, there was a debate whether or not an African could play, um, a black person could play the, the passion, could be Christ figure. So it's sort of a conflation and engagement with those, both of those um, themes. Um, um, in honor of um, the centennial of um, Josephine, um, I thought I would share this one as well. Um, in 2002, I, I was commissioned to do a series of portraits as the boxer and Billie Holiday, and I was very much struck by Billie as being the, the quintessential, let's say, icon of modernity, and in terms of what it meant to deal with issues of trauma, um, the body, um, brilliance and um, what does it mean to somehow have the 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 viewer engage with with, with, with that reflection? Um, my early um, body work, my first body work, was called The Good Life, and um, similar to um, as Hank was talking about his mother, Deb Willis, who was highly inspiring for me. My grandfather, um, all the economists of the Porter Third, he shot over 10,000 slides documenting his friends and family. So, with my first show, all that was very much influenced by the history of photography. It was important that I do a show that I actually referred to my grandfather because that was the home in which I grew up in. And as Bell Hooks had spoken about, um, rightly so, that it's within the black home that black people, African people, African people of, people of African descent began to visualize, to create galleries, to create, to, to create a family, um, an architecture of what was possible. Um, although I grew up in New York, um, I, um, which obviously was, it was not the South, but going to, let's say, an AME church, being in an environment where I was very much exposed to African-American culture, and that mirrored also by my father being South Africa. So um, it's, it's very... Yeah, so getting, getting back to this particular um, piece, um, this was inspired by Michael Stewart. As you know, Michael Stewart was a fan of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and he was killed by New York's finest um, for kissing a white woman in the train station. And in fact, soon after he was killed, um, Basquiat had left um, the country because he was afraid that he would actually be next itself. So um, I, um, I'm queer, uh, I'm black, um, I'm an African, and I should say that one of the concerns, um, particularly coming out of the um, 70s, if you think about the masculine notion of, let's say, um, at least one perspective, let's say, black identity politics, I was very much interested in considering my background, my grandfather being a race man, very much influenced by Du Bois um, and Garvey, as opposed to somehow seeing myself outside of that framework, what does it mean for me to claim this icon, the UNIA flag, which most people date to the 1960s, as you know, was accepted as the official colors for the black race in 1917 by Marcus Garvey. So so hence you have the red, black, and green flag, and I was very much interested what does it mean to, as opposed to deny or to reject, what does it mean to almost to, to 
think about the idea of elasticity to almost expand the notion of what blackness is, to incorporate these multiplicities of identities, et cetera. So um, in 2000, um, I received the Prix de Rome. And um, so I was very much, initially when I, was, when I went to Rome, I thought I was going to be doing more portraits in the studio, um, similar to the previous work. But it was, I think it was my third, fourth week there. I, um, my partner at the time said it was time for me to work. I thought I was just going to hang out and drink Prosecco and eat prosciutto um, for, the, um, for 11 months. But, um, so I do thank my former partner for that. But the morning when he said that to me, there was a cover story in the Herald, cover story in the Herald Tribune about the ugly face of anti-Semitism and race, racism in European soccer. At that point, I got in contact with my editor of the New York Times and I proposed a story juxtaposing um, black um, um, soccer players, whether that's um, Taram from Guadalupe, um, Kafu from Brazil, Masinga, who first took South Africa to the World Cup, as you know, and I was going to juxtapose that story against soccer hooligans. And in, I did photographs of a place, including Taram, the legendary Taram, but I also photographed, let's say, crowds, and I became much more inter equally interested in terms of crowds and power. And can you advance this for me, please? So, very much inspired by. Um, Elias Canetti's books on crowds and power and how masculinity gets played out in the field itself. So um, uh, when I initially was in, um, when I was initially in at the stadium, I thought I had just photographed Berlusconi for the New York Times, and I assumed I was going to be um, hanging out behind this um, plexi barrier, but I didn't look at the New York Times past close enough. But when I did, I realized I had field access, meaning that. I could only be in the field. So, um, so I quickly, I, I didn't plan to take my camera, but I did. So the first game, I was on the field with, let's say, 40,000 riders fans f throwing bananas, cans, et cetera, acting out. As you know, Italy has always been a country where people have emigrated, but in the last 10 years, it's one thing to have, let's say, an African player, a black player, um, playing for, let's say, Roma or um, Lazio, but it's a very different thing for their p distant poor cousin to be buying bread or pasta at the local store. So a lot of the anxiety got displaced onto the field itself. So um, this is uh, Roman Strangers. I was very much interested in um, photographing people unbeknownst to them, and just trying to capture, if you will, the element of cosmopolitanism, often images, images of, um, quote-unquote, the other, um, that you never see in Italian representation of blackness. So in, um, in 2000, while doing research for the, um, while doing research for the soccer thing for the New York Times, I came across his center panel. I'm not into sports per se, but I am into research. And um, this particular um, center panel was a, a, a full page ad in the daily Italian sports paper called La, La Gazzetta Sport. And as you could see, um, is the infamous soccer player um, Zidane, um, who was getting a, a, a foot massage by an unidentified brown skin model. And ambivalence has always been a hallmark of a lot of my work, I mean, contradictions, you know what I'm saying? Trying to tease out the notion of, let's say, um, identity in a much more complicated way. So you have this um, unidentified brown skin model 
either decalising or foot massage of this, of this North African in the, in the context of this particular presentation, there's a legion of race. So I was very much struck by its uncanny resemblance to Manet's Olympia, um, as you know, and then also what did it mean for this text to be a site of, let's say, critique, if you will, of racialized desire within um, sports, you know, the, the homosocial, if you will, the appropriation, not homosexuality, but homosocial within the context of commerce and international sports, and what does it mean to tease that at? So that same text, which is a site of critique, was also a site of pleasure, hence the come on the original newspaper that was blown up to 10 by 8 feet. Um, this, this is the fourth iteration of um, four blow-ups. The first was in Chicago, then it went to Siena, and then this was um, commissioned by Oakley and Razor for the Sevilla Bayan Biennial. And each blow-up, if you would, took up the, the impression of the country that I was um, in. At this time, I was a year into Ghana, so you have, for example, the Ghanaian um, rice sacks, the images, going, images obviously clearly with high-low, ranging from portraits of myself, mediated images, et cetera, the trying to somehow have the collapsing of the idea of what high-low is, et cetera. Um, and obviously referencing a range of art historical aesthetic strategies from cubism appropriation to art into African sign painting, I was trying to do a visual, you know, reconstruction to the idea, or visual de re deconstruction. So the next image, next few images are um, from Ghana. This is Kokobiti, as you know, it's where um, it's a lot of Nigerians, um, well, it, um, Ghana is considered the Palm Springs, you know, of West Africa for the Nigerians, so that's where they go, as well as African Americans. It's a long tradition of African Americans going and they have um, homes on Kokobite. And in this photograph, it's uh, the cook my, on the far left, um, and um, my driver on the, on, on the second from the left, and young friends um, that, um, and a cousin of my um, former partner, Kokobite. Next. So, while in Ghana, um, my first year, I, um, 2005-06, I spent some time in Jamestown, which is the oldest um, um, town, colonial town in Accra, and I came across this one structure where I saw scores of women outside and young kids, and I found out later that it was a, a men's prison. Um, in 2010, in anticipation of the 50th anniversary, excuse me, in 2007, in anticipation of the 50th anniversary, the prisoners were relocated. It was a beautification, and we're trying to turn this particular site into a, um, a tourist um, attraction, if you will. So I was able to get in and inside this um, prison, and to, I came across these collages that were done by prisoners. And I was struck by the uncanny resemblance of some of my collages, but also what it meant in terms of the tropes of modernity, desire, longing for these men, imprisoned men, to be creating um, um, the idea of construction desire and, and longing. So next, please. So this is titled Miss Ghana. So the laying of 17th century fort, um, a colonial fort, uh, um, a slave fort, um, references obviously in Hank's piece, the absolute vodka in Dakar, there's Goy Island, and then in Ghana, as you know, the forts all up and down the coast, this was in Jamestown. Um, so, so the fort, then early 20th century, a, a prison colony. Next. So um, go back, please. I, during, over the course of the year, 
I would photograph in the 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 um, I would photograph in the in the collage in the um, in the prison, but without the prisons, they had to maintain the collages. They began to fall down. So go forward, please. So I can. See, this is the same wall as the producing clearly this ghostly effect. Next. So in 2010, I did an installation at CRG, and um, this is a. Um, a documentation of the wall, working with collage, mirrors, et cetera, on top of, let's say, the, 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 the Jamestown prison wall. Forward. So incorporating in this particular collage, you can see obviously reference to the daily newspaper, the daily graphic about homosexuality um, in Ghana, particularly the incarceration of men. That's mixed in, let's say, with images of myself, my former partner, et cetera, um, obviously the former president, um, Kufour, et cetera. So again, I was interested in that whole idea of high-low and trying to problematize. And what I should say is that any work you see here from Ghana, um, in order for me to make this work, in order for me to show this work in the U.S. and Europe, which it has, it was, it was a necessity that I show this work in Ghana. And all this work has shown in the context of the day center where I was the director for four years. Next. Um, this is a piece in collaboration with a sign painter, Nicholas Wayo, and um, it was, um, well, it's Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's ebony piece, and um, it's um, on funerary fabric. The text reads, um, the, death of the, um, um, the death of one brings about the destruction of the, the family. Next. So I was clearly, go back please, interested in teasing around, um, again, Ghana. Um, I had the you know, fortune to um, live there, to be very much involved in the community. I ran an art center for three to, four, the three to seven years I was there, and very much struck by, you know, having lived in East Africa in the mid-70s growing up there, um, and also my father being South African and having been there um, um, a few times. But there was something about um, Ghana, about being there as an adult by myself, and just really struck by the element of modernity that was taking place. Anything you can get here in the U.S., you can actually get there. But I was also struck by how, as far as people from our, well, let's say from my, the people of the revolution, if you will, whether that's Okwi, Sanam, et cetera, how that generation is living there, not Okwi or Sanam is, but what, what we do when we cross those borders in terms of issues of modernity, how do we translate? So it's one thing to go to a bar and to have, let's say, outside a Lamborghini, a, a Benz, et cetera, but how does that same notion of modernity relate to, let's say, issues of sexual difference and, fe and feminism? And that's something that, for me, was really essential. How do we deal with those notions of modernity as they cross borders, et cetera? So um, this is... Um, Prince and Red Skulls. The next series of works are sort of a postscript to my time. How are we doing for time? Okay, so this is titled um, Prince and Red Skulls. So let's go to the next video, please. In, um, in 2000, in, um, this piece is called Black Power. It takes its title from Richard Wright, um, as you know, the legendary giant, literary giant Richard Wright, who was invited by um, um, Nkrumah um, to um, 
to come and visit Ghana in 56, and the term black power as we know it, it was because um, it was brought into existence by Richard Wright in um, 57, and it's a travelogue. It's a brilliant, although highly um, controversial um, travel, travel log on Ghana. And I was struck by one scene. He lived in Jamestown while he was there, and he saw, can we play the video? Um, and the sound. So I was struck by the um, one particular passage in a book when he refers to these two men dancing, he, and he misreads it. He's assuming that these two men, because of the level of intimacy that exists in men, I mean, you know, men that still exist outside the U.S., I mean, we're still so caught up in the, our relationship to the plantocracy and violence around uh, black and black violence, but in terms of the level of intimacy that it exists in men, that he was misreading it as queer, if you will, the naturality, the element of um, gentleness that exists among men um, throughout the continent, I experienced. So I was um, invited to this um, gym, and this is the, um, my former partner was the DL, but he was the kingpin of the gym, and we don't have time, that's going to be in the memoir coming up, but enough is to say that I was struck by um, the element of modernity, you know, in, in Ghana, in this particular gym, so these are fine men, local men, and it wasn't just like a not, this wasn't like, this, we're not talking about like crunch, okay, we're talking about the closest reference would probably be pumping iron, Schwarzenegger, you know, Event at Beach, a very niche gym. So there was a there was an element of let's say um, courtship, if you will, to get in. I wasn't not, they are used to a lot of Europeans you know, coming in, you know, wanting to get a high off, as you can imagine, off the gym. But there was an exchange that took place in terms of an exchange for hosting a party, a chicken dinner, let's say for 50 gym guys, you know, with you know with their spouses, you know, and. Um, and an exchange of a mass. So, but it was a it was complicated because they were aware that, um, subtly aware that he might have been. But it has to do with naming. I, I mean, this first one actually taking some public at a at a party for that I was giving for a friend of mine who was leaving. I slipped and I referred to he and my other friend. And so I'm accountable for that. But the dissolution of the gym because by naming something, things began to unravel. That said, there were several people inside the gym who had partners, etc. But what does it mean to name something? So I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, this is just the beginning of a whole range of like, I have um, scores of hours of video from my time in Ghana that I still have yet to really to dig up and to, you know, to really to excavate. So let's go forward. I will, okay. Brilliant. Okay, great. So, um, Ghana, you can, if you want to read about this, Aperture this month, next. 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 So, in 2012, I'll just quickly introduce these. I got back from Ghana, grieving relationship, grieving 
the loss, what I felt the loss of, of Ghana, although I'm going, I'll be going back for a wedding in October. And at that time, a, f- a close friend of mine, Isaac Julian, um, sent me a Facebook message asking to use some of my photographs for, um, for his upcoming riot autobi- autobiography to accompany his MoMA exhibition. And I, at that point, um, started looking into this archive that I hadn't seen for 15 years, I hadn't engaged with. So to save time, I'll just go through them very quickly. So this is, we'll talk about them. So um, Venice. <laughs> so getting back to Chica was saying, we'll talk about it in the conversation, because this relates to that in terms of community. This is 20 years ago, Isaac and John Acomfro, who when at, at CalArts, when they told you know, my chair, take care of him because we're watching you. That's what we need to be doing today, you know, 20 years later. Next. Next. Um, this is Mem Lamar, you know, who is the um, brother of. Thank you. Next. My dear, dear friend, um, Essex Hemphill, um, at Lace, um, with the brother to brother cover of book. Um, so I'm in the process now of talking to um, Adrian about developing this because this is something that just the 3,000 slides, accompanied by video, film, as well as let's say a whole over um, 100 diaries, and begin to source this material. So I think I'll move on so we can actually have a conversation. Great, let's do that. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you. That was incredible. It was such a pleasure to hear you both talk about your work and and to see the images. And this is always an interesting thing to do because we have these conversations on a kind of one-on-one basis. And it's always kind of strange to then have to do it publicly in front of people. Um, But it's also a, a pleasure. I mean, I think I want to start for a whole series of reasons with what I think is kind of a question from Koyo, but also in many ways an opportunity. Um, So I'm thinking of it more as a proposition. Um, And that is this question of what is the state of the African in the term African-American? And I wanted to start there because I feel like it somehow encompasses a lot of the themes that were kind of percolating in your work. being troubled in your work. And, and one of them really sits for me um, in, the, in the notion of modernity, right? I think we have to back up a little bit before we can even think about an African American or an African, back to the fact that what we recognize is who we are collectively in this country has been formulated under a rubric that is entirely a concept. It's a concept that I tend to like to name, many people call it different things, blackness, right? As a kind of holder. Because for me, it's also a way to acknowledge somehow that the African underwent a kind of transmission of some sort in that crossing. Um, and, and that 
while there's an effective capacity, which I would love to hear you talk about at some point in relation to your work, what is, what is the blackness or the African in that work beyond just merely, and this is, becomes interesting in the context of a, of a photograph or a kind of representational object, um, where it becomes a bit more, um, what are the elusive qualities of that? And this is coming from an interest of my own. But really, what I, what I want to mark is that because it's so endemic to the ways in which we understand and live our lives today, this Black Lives Matter movement, it's the fact that this concept of blackness was constant, and it's been called many things, it was a Negro, it was colored in this country, is a, is a, is a concept that derives specifically out of a system of modernity, right? So that the ways in which we even, you make art within the context and history of something called modernism is directly an aesthetic category, right, of this entire overwhelming system. So then, in particular, I'm interested in, in that in relation to Hank's work and the fact that you name yourself specifically a photoconceptualist. So what does it mean if there's something called a concept of blackness, which can I just mark and say that Du Bois pens this in his second autobiography, which he wrote just before he went to Ghana. And he talks beautifully through personal experience about the autobiography of a concept of race. So this man had been like the race man, as we've talked about, for years. And then gets to this moment where he says, oh shit, this whole entire thing that I thought I knew and understood in a really particular way is a concept. It is a part of the system that is built and structured to delimit who I am and what I can be. And therefore, you have to understand how to then navigate it. And so what is your investment? Or I want to understand, what is the photo conceptualist? What does it mean to image a concept for you? Well, I, I, I've kind of tried to shorten my title to saying, um, I'm Hank Willis Thomas, I'm a person. Because I feel like that says more. That's the best label that I could actually, um, it's the only label I want. Um, I said, first I was like, I'm a photographer. Then I got bored with that. I was like, then I'm a photo conceptual artist. I was like, I'm a conceptual artist. But, you know, I'm a visual culture archaeologist. I'm just a person. And I say that as I pound on the leather. <laughs> because I want people to see that first. It doesn't matter what I do and how I do it or what I call it. It's, it's me as a person. Um, what Baldwin said, struggling to figure out what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. And when I think about that in relationship to blackness is that blackness was created to de-human being us. Um, and uh, I'm working on a project with Jesse um, Williams, who's here, uh, called Question Bridge Black Males. And part of it is this, it's a video-mediated video megalogue between African-American men, but really it's, a, a, it's tr trying to create a pathway towards freedom. So we're calling it about black men, but it's really about people and trying to help people to recognize that every, every person has a perspective and their perspective is as valuable as anyone else's. And if we are all using our voices and listening as well as speaking, um, I think, the conversations we'll have and the progress we'll make will be um, much um, more valuable to, the, to future generations. 
So it's this claim for personhood, a way to kind of like resist being limited to a, or defined as a specific type of something? Is it a kind of resistance? And I'm interested because your work in so many ways looks at these systems and really, and, and kind of, you know, makes interventions around them and around presentations of types and. Yeah, I, well, it's really because I started thinking, I, I was a photographer until we started having devices that made me calling myself a photographer irrelevant. And then I was a conceptual artist, a photo conceptual artist, until I wanted to try to make, you know, sculpt. I mean, a, a, a painting or something else. And and I just realized that I I don't want to have my if I ever have a biography or bi autobiography, I I'd like to like reclaim where I want to end at the beginning. So you talked about um, du, du Bois having this revelation, and I think through reading his work and the work of so many people, I like that statement of Baldwin, a person is more important than anything else. That's the beginning and the end of, of, of everything I'm trying to talk about. And the idea of using a frame and, re, and deconstructing frames and reframing and different materials um, and using the camera are just different devices to really try to say the same thing in a variety of ways. Lyle, what's the status of African and African American? <laughs> status of African and African-American? Oh, I mean, how do I answer that? Um, the status of African and African-American. I don't, I don't even really know how to answer that. I, mean, I can talk of my own experience. Um, and I was very fortunate at a young age after my, my parents' divorce in, I guess, the early 70s. And my mother, visionary woman, um, took... She, took herself and her two young boys, my brother and I, um, to Dar es Salaam. As you know, it was post-civil rights. A lot of African-Americans um, were going, doing service. She's an educator, and she had a sabbatical, and she basically she was on sabbatical in Tanzania for a year, and she took an extra year. So that was a profound experience that radically shifted my sense of what it meant to be um, you know, a human or American or a person of the world, et cetera. And, and that was at age, you know, not nine to 11. And um, so I, um, and to this day, to, you know, to, to 50 in terms of like really um, almost yearning for to have that contact with, you know, with the continent, you know, in terms of in the literal sense, but also in the metaphorical sense. I mean, through the music, you know, through people, through relationships, et cetera. Um, Do you have a recollection of your time in Africa? Maybe the earliest, your earliest experiences in Tanzania of when, did you have an understanding that you were somehow different? When I came back or when I... Either. <laughs> okay, I'll, good. well, I'll, 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 I'll give examples. So, came back, so, um, yeah, I can give you, that's a whole other chapter in memoir, but we don't have time for that. But what I can say, when I got back after two years and being at Truman High School, um, ninth grade, and um, school of 2000, and this is when they started putting in, you know, um, what do you call that? It was the next step to jail, when they, when they, they institutionalized metal detectors in high schools in the Bronx. So fortunately, my, uh, uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I, the woman who was the head, the head of student union, delivering her speech and say, 
to stop acting your color. And this is an African-American woman, young woman, in the Bronx in a school of 2000. So now, how, how rattled I was by that. And that was something that was just sort of accepted. So um, I guess, I mean, I guess, for me, I guess just the idea of uh, being in Tanzania and having someone walk five miles out of the way for directions or the sense of kindness or the sense of um, um, community, you know, around food, around sharing, around celebration, around walking from, let's say, from primary school to, let's say, 10 miles to greet incoming president who's visiting. I mean, that for me, those kinds of recollections, you know, um, I think will, all, will forever be with me. And I think it left a deep impression of what it meant to be in a black, um, you know, an a black African country. I mean, I grew up in a highly race conscious, you know, um, family. Um, my grandfather, as I mentioned, was a, um, a disciple of Du Bois. My, he never made it to Africa, but my, my mother had been, and she, she married a South African. So very much into um, a very cosmopolitan, you know, African identity. For example, upon return, um, being Mary Makiba, Humasakella, my home in the Bronx, you know, was a site where South African, let's say, exiles were living, you know, the house I had resentment at at the time, you know, having to get my debt up, but it was a site, that's the home in which I grew up. So that said, within that, my own queer sensibility, I never felt the type of, let's say, resistance within a, a more global African context than I did against my African-American compatriots. So that's sort of, thing. and so we need to talk about in terms of this whole discussion around, let's say, the recent wave of, let's say, homophobia in the, black, in the African context, we need to really to talk about in relationship to the religious strike from the US, the exploitation of that. So for me, I always, had a more mercurial relationship to blackness because an Americanist because of my relationship to the continent, without question. And so this question of diaspora, I mean, I wonder, is there a way to kind of think through it in terms of what is, um, how do you think of what a diaspora is, right? Like it's, it to me seems to be about conveying a sense of belonging to some larger collective that is somehow still, at least I sense it as quite elusive. Um, I had a, a friend, a very good friend of mine who's Kenyan said to me, she was just recalling the story of a, a couple she knew and, and she said, well, you know, one partner is, um, she's this interracial relationship. One partner is African and the other is black American. And I just laughed. Um, and, and it's because there seems to be this sensibility of like, that, that exists somehow, at least from my perspective, having to do with the black American as a, as a kind of, um, in the fifth dimension in a way, you know, kind of where love is. It's kind of this overwhelming sense of, of, of loss and longing and trauma. And trauma. Yeah but without being traumatized. Do you know what I mean? Because there's some really beautiful things. No, question, but I'm thinking about even being in Florence two weeks ago, and I'm excited about coming to Venice, and then I'm bombarded by the Lampedusa coming to the BBC. I mean, I'm, 
how much of us are really talking about? I, I don't. I, I mean, I, I can see it in terms of the, you know the Johnny Walker, but I don't see in terms of like the, the discourse, the disparity. How do how do we? How does this audience? How do we get around psychically around those kinds of contradictions that have something as historical as Oakley's Biennial? And then to have I, mean, I was at, I was at Villa La Pietra in, in Florence, and just to think about the onslaught of the, the pornographic onslaught of BBC and the trafficking. I mean, it's complicated. And I just sort of feel like, how do we deal with it? I mean, I, I'm, it's a question that I actually have. I guess I'm throwing it, you know. Because that's why I mentioned the term trauma as well. Um, I think of, um, there's something you said that um, made me think of something I've been laughing to myself about. It's not funny. So, um, but when I think about um, the black, I think when I think about diaspora in general, I always think about who is the us and who is the them. Uh, because frequently when I, I put my foot in my mouth, when I'm like, oh, you're one of them, they're like, no, I'm actually one of us. And so I, 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 that part of my own need to like stop putting my foot in my mouth, which I'm really good at, um, is this, this understanding that everything is, is, um, is malleable, um, and, and flexible, it needs, it, it needs to be that I can't, I don't, the me I see through these eyes is different from the me you see through your eyes. And um, depending on the circumstance, my alignment of which diaspora, what kind of diaspora I, I, I am a part of is, comes up. Having had the experience of within a sh short while going from South Africa to Angola to Senegal, um, you, it starts to, you start to beg the question of like, well, what, it, what is the common thread, you know, that, that we're trying to say is this black thing, where it's like culturally, the way people look, the way people relate, it's dramatically, it's as different as it is to being in different parts of Europe. Um, and speaking about that, I, I am thinking about this, what, it, what will Europe as look like, what will France look like in 50 years, I wonder because the Louvre has been telling a story um, for for quite some time. Um, but when the people who are telling the story look different than the people in the pictures, um, I wonder what will happen. So I'm thinking about this in a way. The way that Europe um, colonized Africa, I, I see what's happening um, as as treacherous as it is, is a recolon as a Africa recolonizing Europe as it did. Uh, a, a millennia ago, and, and I think there's the, this kind of, and then who will be the diaspora? You know, is the, are, are we forgetting that, you know, most of Southern Europe was definitely Africa at some point. <laughs> um, so, what, so how are we, um, or if we all come from Africa, so these, the, I, I'm, how far do we want to go back before we start um, saying who's the us and who's the them? Well, I guess hearing you say that, I guess it makes me think about this. Oh. It makes me think about as sort of a, in terms of our work, a contemplation of like representation because even in the U.S., the recent anxiety in Baltimore, the violence, to what extent is that because of the shifting demographics that are happening here? And the question is, it's going to be, there's, there's a shift of the people, as you're suggesting, but also in terms of the control of the representation. And I think that is really where the importance of, let's say, your, our work is in terms of how does, because it's one thing to, or it's one thing to have the shift in terms of demographics, but in terms of the power of representation mm -hmm. and how we implicated. 
It's a really yeah. good question because, you know, every major political movement, and I'm going to narrow this to the United States, having to do with black rights in particular, has had a very specific aesthetic associated with it, right? Like, there was a major aesthetic associated with the black, the black arts movement was the aesthetic arm of the black power movement. The Black Panthers, Emory Douglas, had, was his entire job is like the minister of... Um, Good images? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that was an aesthetic. The Black um, Lives Matter, you know, those protests, and I think um, it was Julie who mentioned this in the earlier panel, you know, when they shut down Macy's or Grand Central Square, like, that performance was incredible, like to watch the kind of organization, the choreography associated with that. And, you know, we, we don't know when we've hit the event until after it's already happened, right? So in some way, we've already, this event has, is, has been happening for a very long time. We're here in another episode of it. What is, is it possible? Should we even be thinking about aesthetics around or articulating an artistic sensibility around these issues. And I'm reminded of it because Adam Pendleton, over of all places, the Belgian Pavilion in Venice, hung a Black Lives Matter flag that he created. And I thought, this is an instance of one of the first times that I've seen in a, in a kind of, in a, on a platform like this, this kind of articulation around the fact that these things are happening. And then the fact that it resonated so significantly not just in the U.S. context, but in a European context too, because of this issue around migration. I think I, I as much as I love I, the, 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 the sound, the ring of Black Lives Matter, as much as I've used it um, for my own branding, um, I despise the term because it is. It, it starts with the assumption. Like, if I have to say my life matters, like, I might as well not even, you know, and that, that, so I always felt more comfortable with all lives matter because I want to say, like, your life matters and my life matters too. I don't want to say, like, my life matters because it's, I, it's already assumed that yours does. Um, so, uh, and, 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 and I go, I, and I struggle with that also because so many of the people who are shouting black lives matters don't, uh, we wouldn't call black. Um, many of the people who are participating in the protests in the 60s and the, in the teens and the eight, in the 19th century and the 18th century, um, many, many major figures in black history were not what we would call black. And, ah, so I, and that's I, the beauty of blackness. And that's, and, that's why, and that's why I'm like, who's the us and who's the them? You know, um, and there's, I wish I could, I wrote it down. There's um, Nicholas Klobo had this amazing statement um, at a conference in South Africa where he talked about the struggles of um, basically the, the blacker than thou and the more down than thou in the, in the kind of ways in which South Africans, black South Africans are forced to kind of conform because of the political legacy. And he says, uh, what makes you think that uh, um, just because, what do you say? Just because um, I'm a comrade doesn't mean that I necessarily want to sing your song. Um, and that question of like, what makes me politically righteous and what makes me a sellout 
should be up to me, not up to, to anyone else. And I think that's where I, I think I'm always struggling with, like, once I'm on that side, I want to get back on that side. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you, Hank. And I was thinking about that, that bringing that point out because, and it's true, right? Like, I can't think of anything else that has the ability quite like blackness to be so capacious, to be so, this thing that is constantly shifting, right? It's, it's actually un, part of its challenge and the untenable dynamics of it is that it is always the shifting almost unknow radically unknowable thing that we think we know, right? Or someone might think they know, but it, there's an impossibility to it. Um, and Fred Moten has written beautifully about this. But Lyle, do you, before we open it up for questions from the audience, do you wanna talk about this community aspect? I mean, one of the things we were thinking about diaspora and I was shifting diaspora to kind of shift it from that to more broadly to the notion of community in terms of the ways in which you were capturing from that treasure trove of Polaroids and photographs of like everyday life in some fabulous places, but everyday life. If you wanted to think about that as a kind of site of multiplicity in terms of all kinds of identities and converging and, and what that significance is for you, why you were so, um, you were so diligent in photographing every, I mean, I've seen boxes, so I know how much you have, but. And thank you. Yeah, but um, if you wanna talk about your own desire and longing and why you were capturing those things and, yeah. I mean, I guess similar to like um, Hank and, um, and um, Deb um, is my, my, my relation to my grandfather in a certain sense. It was modeling the fact that although my grandfather was an economist, he was photographing everything, you know, churches, you know, um, birthday parties. Um, and both my brother and I have used all his work, his archive, for multiple, for many of our projects. I think for me it was, in addition to that, it was just the idea of the, um, I'm not quite sure how theoretical it was. I mean, I think in a way, now, I mean, we can obviously lay a theory on top of it. Put but a book. Yeah, exactly. But I think it was about the, it was an impulse, you know. I guess maybe Oakley talks about archival impulse, impulse to somehow to document, you know, to, to record and to, um, to, there was, a, I guess there was a sense, sense of urgency that a lot of these people were, were leaving, Marlon Riggs, you know, I have a photograph of him a few months before he passed away when he was receiving the award for the youngest tenured professor at Berkeley, taking AZT, I mean, just like, but seeing someone at that advanced stage of HIV on the front line for making um, his film, or Angela Davis at the Black Public Culture Conference, there was a certain sense of urgency that there, there was history in the making. And for me, being young, I felt my way of being able to cope, I mean, I'll be very direct and honest, my way of being able to cope with being present was to have the camera. It almost became an appendage, if you will, the fact that that was one of my way of being able to negotiate. Even the black male, you know, even though I was in the exhibition, you know, being young and having, I mean, as Rank was saying, getting my work being recognized at a young age, even before I knew really what the work was, if that, make, if that makes any sense, that, um, I mean, I shouldn't say, not, I knew what the work was, but being able to find the, the language for the work, um, 
that photographing became the everyday snapshot became a way to almost to, I guess similar to like Adrian Piper and like Food of the God series, to be able to see my presence, to be able to um, embody my, my body in relationship to what was actually happening. And the photographs um, that Adrian's referring to def definitely capture the fault line that existed among multiple communities. Because what we're looking at right now, I mean, I, this is quite, it's not new, but it's a different inflection of what I might have experienced in Tanzania at being, let's say, at um, the African chicken farm where all the women are clearly behind the making the goat or chicken or whatever, and the men were up front. So this is a different, I, I, I'm used to community, but what this particular energy right now is radically different from what I might have known, let's say, 40 years ago. This is also different, let's say, from the early conversation with Greg Tate, Thelma, where communities were getting together and having discussions around black contemporary discourse. So as Chica said, that it's to celebrate, but it's also to really to ask ourselves what not to what is next? I mean, I almost feel that, I mean, getting back to the whole thing, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, I was, and the, um, the big um, demonstration that took place, I was saying that all those people, in regards of what the ethnicity need to go back to the institutions, because there's one thing to demonstrate. There's a, never, a very different thing to go back to the institutions and make those institutions, and I'll talk for my own NYU, accountable for the Baltimore with inside of those institutions. And you know what I'm talking about. And I think all of us, because, I mean, the collectives we refer to are friends. I want all these people to be accountable for when another young brother dies on the street that the blood is in all of our hands. So it's one thing to celebrate, but how are we really accountable for that? And I mean, that's something that I'm really, I'm really thinking about. And I was really inspired by Hanks, Chris, and Bridget, really trying to think, how do you create this other form of community and really a sense of agency? And I think really getting that type of work into, you know, getting, I mean, that work needs to be broadcasted around the city. And how do you bring, if it hasn't already been, in terms of like around the country, how do we begin to, let's say, really bring in a sense of agency, because I think we are at a critical moment, you know. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think it's a good, good time for two questions. Great. Hands up. Don't shoot. Um, I, th I say that um, because there's, what I love about looking in this group, there's so many people who I would love to listen to. There's so many things that each of you um, have said to me, or I've had the pleasure of sitting, you, sitting there to watch you talk, um, we forget what it means to go to a place where we know we have something to say and to listen. And I feel like um, I'm so thankful as I, as I look into your eyes, into your eyes, into your eyes, into your eyes, um, that you all actually took a, a moment to, 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 to listen to us and hopefully take something away. But also, I hope you will make time to, to share your words and invite the rest of us and make spaces for the rest of us to come and also hear the call um, in our busy schedules. Thank you for that, Hank. Um. Uh. Yes, my name is Sol, Sol Zags. Thank you both very much for coming out. Um, I love the talk. Um, I, I'm curious, I know um, um, <clears throat> I, 
I'm, I'm curious about the idea of, of how to fight European supremacy. Um, we've, we've fought it consistently using European concepts, European language, European um, moralistic views, you know, um, throughout our history. Um, we've also fought it in popular culture using African retentions, using syncopated rhythms, using um, um, African dance. Um, um, I'm curious from you guys, I've heard a lot about race, I've heard a lot about us as a breed, but very little about, about um, us culturally. Um, um, for um, Glenn Ligon, I'm curious um, how you felt about Ghana um, and the embrace of, say, Christianity right now in Ghana and, 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 and the um, dismissal of traditional African culture in Ghana and um, how can we redeem African culture? You know, you had spoken about modern art as being um, um, the epitome of expression right now, but modern art is very much um, an, an, um, an expression of African cultural history. It's, it's amazing to me, this move of bringing what was primitive and then making it modern once European, once it moves through the European supremacist lens. And I guess I'm very interested in the redemption of not just the race, but the culture. Um, well, that's one thing you can always count on Soul for uh, pointing out these, uh, I, I love how he talked about framing. So what was primitive almost in the same moment became modern. <laughs> Um, just by who was who was telling the story, and I think I'm not personally interested in getting rid of European um, supremacy because I'm stuck with this language. I will be thinking forever through this language. And when I went to Senegal and I was hearing people say stuff in Wolof, and they were like, "That doesn't mean the same." Like, there's no way to say what I'm saying in your language it means that there's a whole way of understanding the world that I will never fully understand. Um, I'm interested in in colonizing through my own work through my own consciousness um, as much as I can, um, but also recognizing, and I think the, the tool of that is recognizing that within each, even if you look in Africa, um, country, I talk about countries, but every, the countries are not real. There's you know thousands of religions, thousands yeah. of cultures, thousands of worldviews, so when we say African culture, I cringe because I'm like, I don't know what that is. Um, so I would, say Af I, I would say the one way is to talk about the the incredible diversities that happen there, similar to like even in someone mentioned Belgium, where you have two. We are very clear that you know Belgium is has at least two different um, languages and cultures um, that are distinct, even though it's like 20 minutes apart with uh, between. And I, so I think thinking about these this huge continent and the diversities that exist there, I think and the ethnicities that exist there is is what we need to promote and not just label it Africa, even though. 154 was brilliant, I have to say. Yeah, I think in 154 is a perfect example and while we're here in New York about the kinds of encounters that are purposeful encounters, right? And I think that, that those encounters have been happening for a long, long, long time. So some of the things that we even think are so-called pure, as Hank is really pointing to, um, it's an impossibility. It's already, always, from way before we even thought somehow shifted. But thank you for that. 
afternoon. My name is Lewis Long, and I just want to thank you for the forum and thank you guys for just articulating just, you know, just amazing brilliance in terms of the span and scope of your work. And I kind of look at this differently, and I, I definitely kind of, you know, am aligned with Hank in terms of really feeling a little weird about this Black Lives Matter thing, right? Um, and, and I think that, I think more than anything else, I think what your work can do and will do. I mean, a monolithic or a monolithic thought about how we think about who we are and the concept of black or the diaspora, you know, given where we're going as, as people, and that's all people, the human race, is that it really is about the individual. And so if you think about your work and really what your work does, Lyle, and what your work does, um, Hank, and then what your work is even doing now with your current exhibition, it's really about reimagining who we are giving our realities so that we're empowered as individuals. And what that allows us to then do is to be who we are and not be marginalized. So how do we take these systems and be who we are and not be marginalized? That's the bottom line. And so the question is, do you think about marginalization as being the real force that we are trying to fight against as opposed to exert some common theme that really is just a concept? Well, I thought Chica's point, um, I, what I heard of it, he was saying that how do we actually take what is actually happening and get it out there? Because I think, I mean, that was, that was what I heard the last part. And I mean, just, just why I appreciate your comments. Um, again, getting back to the Venice Biennale, I'm just wondering how do we, um, how many people have seen the, Gordon, the, um, the, Lawrence, the Jacob Lawrence show at the Whitney? How many people? MoMA, excuse me. How, is that, so that's maybe half or a quarter? I mean, for example, that's an historical show. And what are we doing in terms of, I mean, that's something that is a major site. What are we doing in terms of the receiving information and taking it in? So although maybe the term Black Lives Matter may, you know, may be not the term we want to use, I think we should make it matter enough so those people actually have access to that institution, so they have access to the information. Because being an academic, at a place like NYU, I could see black lives do matter where in New York City, where you have less than 3% of the population is African American. Black lives do matter. I understand the critique of the term, but I think in a way that we have to somehow look at with all the um, abundance, to what extent, how are we making a link to, let's say, to reach those people who are continue to be marginalized economically, socially, et cetera. And I think that's something like Quentin Bridge does it. But I think that is, for me, our clerical, how do we engage that level of discourse? Because even thinking about how many people are, let's say, hooked up to an IV, what's the show, um, you know, um, Dynasty? Not Dynasty. Um, Empire, hooked up to, with an IV, with a Kentucky Fried, you know what? and the high blood pressure, when we have it, I mean, from all, so, all walks of social economic within the black community, talking about you know, how do we deal with actually getting access to opening that channel where people are, have access to those institutions and claiming those space. I think there was an article 
a few weeks ago by um, um, the godfather of Afrocentricity. He talked about oh, yeah. claiming space. This is claiming space. It's a series in the New York Times. That yeah. he was, brilliant, yeah. brilliant series. Yeah. Sorry, we have so many. Um, I just wanted to say that I think I, we have to, have to accept that we're, as human beings, lazy. That we, we do categorize and we do marginalize because we all want to be, feel special. But I think the, the important thing is to also constantly check yourself and be aware um, as you navigate, we always going to find shortcuts, but also recognize, like I say black people, I say black lives matter, I say um, I, I'm black, 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 but I also know that I'm, I'm kind of, I'm using it as a pun. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, so I feel like there's that, we keep not trying to continue to be flexible. I know you were going to say something. First, thank you to all of you. My name is Lanisa. I'm with the National Museum of African Art at the Smithsonian Institution. And one of the things that we are grappling with on staff at the Smithsonian is the emergence, all of the challenges and wonderful opportunities that are arrive uh, upon us with the emergence of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And one of the questions I have for the both of you, all of you actually, is how do we grapple with those tensions with, uh, within the diaspora, within the diaspora communities. There is the impulse, I think, to um, think of the African American History and Culture Museum as a place or a site for competition, when internally there's the impulse to collaborate. So the question again is, how do we grapple with the internal tensions that exist within African diasporic communities? Does that make any sense to you? Okay. Again, I always struggle to define, like are Dominicans part of this Afro-Kin Yep. Okay. So are, I claim are, are, anybody. Are, are Cubans? Which Cubans? Afro-Cubans? How, how do you define Afro-Cuban? I mean, generally, there are people who are of African ancestry. Visibly? But she, she was saying that you can't define it. I said there are also spiritual practices, and there's oftentimes an awareness of, the, of African ancestry. So oftentimes they won't identify as being black, but there is an awareness. Like I'm thinking of my time in Latin America and Venezuela, and people definitely will identify as Afro-Venezuelan. So are they African-American then? I, they're from the Americas, and they're of, of African descent, and if they chose to take on that label, it depends. But usually African-American refers to people in the United States. Of, of well, Afri I mean, people from of Venezuela moved to the United States? No, no American, you know. Well, that's my point, Yeah. you know. No, it's very um, complex. Is that like our struggle in defining African American is do we want to include the the the, the people who just got off the boat from from Haiti? Do we want to include um, the, the 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 people who are don't bring our cultural trauma? Um, like African Americans are very rooted in like it's about slavery. It's about you know like blackness is about what happened here, not about what's happened over millennia. Um, and, I, and so I so, think the, the, the question that, that you're talking about is how inclusive, it, it depends on how inclusive we, we want to be um, and, and as far as who's going to be the us in Africa, America. Well, that's what was so brilliant about the, the, uh, the Jacob Lawrence show, in addition to showing the migration, it had a literary, music, historical, I mean, really laid out to somehow see the context for um, 
Jacob Lawrence in terms of him, I mean, was talk about modernism in terms of being able to image text. I mean, this is 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Really looking at the archive. So in addition to the exhibition, it had the history from of literature, black, li- black literature. And Jacob Lawrence said something that really stuck with me. And he talked about his experience of being an artist during World War II. And he said, of, it struck me in the midst of all the chaos uh, that through all the advances we have in science and technology and literature and art, we still haven't uh, mastered the urge to kill. Um, and this is a black man in Europe. And, 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 these, and, and these are the ways in which I think that we can talk about the, the crossing, the, the, the all lives mattering. Uh, when you see a, 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 a person from an African-American perspective looking at all the advancements that we're talking about in Western culture and not being able to solve the most primary, simple problem. Um, Can I make? Yes. Sorry. Thank you for reminding us, Koyo. Thank you. Thank you, Hank. Thank you, Lyle.